I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. According to former ambassador to Mexico Tony Garza, the opening of the border has become complicated by COVID and recent immigration issues. The RGV Hispanic Chamber of Commerce hosted a Zoom webinar with former ambassador to Mexico Tony Garza on March the 11th. Some of the topics discussed included the possibility of opening the borders, USMCA, and also safety and security in Mexico. The CEO of the RGV Hispanic Chamber, Cynthia Sokulinski, spoke to Garza. Tony Garza had some important advice for persons traveling into Mexico. Look at the, the areas you're traveling to in terms of the, the realities of the pandemic. Look at the restrictions, whether they be the essential, non-essential along the border or the State Department advisories. And ultimately, the advice I, I, I give many people is, uh, is don't leave your common sense at home. Uh, you know, simply because you're traveling uh, to a foreign country, recognize that there are going to be rules and there are going to be risks uh, associated with that travel. So. You know, you're, you're starting to see a bit more travel. I don't think that the uh, tourism industry in Mexico has, has rebounded by any means. Uh, the two engines that continue to motor their economy have less to do with what's being done uh, in terms of uh, development and, and uh, investment locally and have more to do with remittances uh, coming from the United States to Mexico. Uh, and their exports. So it'll be a while before their tourism industry is, is where it needs to be. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting people not travel. I'm just I'm suggesting that people travel with their eyes wide open and their masks on. I hear you. Absolutely. Well, we were, <clears throat> we were con considering, we've been discussing the fact of possibly um, hosting a trade mission to uh, to one mm -hmm. or two of the cities uh, so again you would probably I would probably need to be contacting the uh, local uh, officials from there and making sure that we have full uh, that we're covered that we're safe yes yeah, I, I, yeah, I, th I think that's wise I think your tra trade missions uh, should be very targeted in, in the sense of uh, cities and industries. And those, you know, obviously looking at uh, areas that are most beneficial to your membership uh, and working closely with uh, whomever, or whichever organization uh, might be hosting you as part of those trade missions. Uh, as you know, at, at the embassy, we hosted uh, uh, many trade missions and we're always very sensitive to the needs of the delegations traveling, whether they be uh, local organizations or congressional delegations out of Washington. Uh, and that was in a di very different time. Uh, quite frankly, there was uh, a little less concern about security in the big cities. And certainly the pandemic was something that we weren't thinking about at all. So, yeah, we're closely with your hosts. Uh, and I, I think from the standpoint of the organization itself, uh, look at cities and uh, sectors that are most relevant to your membership. I get two to three questions a day. The same questions a day regarding the same thing. When do you think that President Biden is going to open the borders? 
Well, you know, if you take a step back, really, I think it, and it's it's uh, in terms of the uh, Biden uh, Lopez Obrador relationship, it's it's going through an interesting uh, period, as you might imagine, the start of a new administration and six months out from elections in Mexico. I think if you if you look at the relationship itself, it, it it's an important one. It's on relatively sound ground. Uh, but I wouldn't characterize it as a very forward-looking uh, relationship. And I'm sure we can talk about that a bit more uh, in a moment. But to get back to your question, uh, in terms of, of, quote, opening the border, uh, I think that's been complicated, uh, not only by the pandemic and the concerns around that, uh, but the immigration uh, issues of late. Uh, I've been on you know, numerous calls, both with uh, individuals within the administration uh, people from former administrations and policy and think tanks. And there's a recognition that what we're going through now in terms of the increases in apprehensions and, and uh, undocumented crossings is really, in some respects, not too unlike what we saw in the early to mid part of 2019 uh, with a very different administration and a very different approach to immigration. But you know, in talking to uh, people in this administration, they, you know, they characterize it as people are moving towards hope, the sense that there will be an opportunity either to register your asylum claim uh, or petition the uh, immigration services for, uh, for some sort of uh, relief. In early 2019, interestingly enough, you also saw big increases in the numbers of people, but they were moving out of fear the sense that either the border would be closed or there would be much stricter or quite frankly, just uh, closed paths to legalization in the United States. So uh, I, I don't anticipate you'll see too much movement away from the kind of framework in terms of quote, opening the border uh, in, in, in the short term. You know, I think we all appreciate that that uh, what is lacking, in, if we are ever to get to the point of a of a safe, secure, and more efficient border, is more comprehensive uh, immigration reform uh, to make clear what the pathways are, uh, and also to uh, invest uh, more uh, aggressively in areas like Central America. And I'm not talking about just pouring money into Central America, but but working with, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations and business to address some of the causes uh, in the, you know, with uh, primarily three countries, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and, and El Salvador, that have situations that uh, for people are simply unlivable. So it's it's a combination of things. But to your question, I don't anticipate that you'll see uh, too much movement away from where we are now in terms of, quote, opening the border. Uh, now you'll see, you know, so, something around the margins as the situation around the pandemic uh, improves and something around the margins, I think, in terms of trade, because, uh, you know, exports are so important to Mexico and many of those companies are U.S. multinationals. But more broadly, that opening that, uh, you know, many on this call uh, fondly remember of, you know, a handful of years ago, uh, I, I just don't see that uh, us moving that direction uh, quickly. 
that, and it's compounded by uh, many people simply aren't traveling to the sister cities anymore because of concerns about uh, safety and security. Uh, and many of the businesses that we once traveled or restaurants that we once frequented or friends that we were once visited uh, are no longer, uh, businesses are closed and many of, uh, you know, our, 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 our friends and relatives in, in the border cities have moved uh, either to the valley or, or other places. So it, it's a very different border, Cynthia. So I, I, the notion that it'll be open as it once was, I think is nostalgic, but unlikely. True. Um, again, for those of you that have uh, joined us and were late, please use the chat box if you'd like to submit a question or a comment. And uh, with time permitting, we might be able to uh, address those at the end. Um, I believe that Congressman Vicente Gonzalez addressed exactly mm -hmm. that just this yeah. past week. So, and uh, I concur completely. Um, as they say, you know, get the head of the stake. And then that will hopefully take care of things or start to take care of things. Yeah. But <clears throat> excuse me, um, as you know, the uh, the uh, border wall has ceased to continue to be built. So uh, what do you think it would take other than us approaching our congressmen and our senators to hopefully move some of those funds to 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 supply more help along the border, whether it be with your customs, your border patrol, or uh, I do that they I know that they do need additional buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what what course should we take? Well, I think I think you you, you started in probably the most critical place in terms of advocacy in Washington. Is it's going to be through our members of Congress and our and our leadership. Uh, but I will tell you, and I think we all appreciate this, that they they are more responsive to constituents than they are more broadly to to larger issues. So the advocacy that I think is most effective is going to come from organizations like 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 this chamber and business people within the community. Now, it's not that our local leaders don't appreciate the issues. Uh, I think it's important that, that they be part of coalitions that are broadly people not only living along the border, but across the state and nation that recognize that trade and orderly immigration and this relationship with Mexico and Canada are critical to all our futures and that the jobs and the lives dependent on this relationship are critical. Now, you, you talk about infrastructure and, you know, Cynthia, that's that's been something that... Uh, has been, you know, item number one in terms of the frustration uh, for lack of funding. As long as I can remember, uh, I remember working, you know, as a county judge back in the back in the in the olden days, aquellos tiempos, as we like to uh, refer to anything more than thirty years ago. And I was working closely with county judges, both sides of the aisle, and representatives. And 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 then our focus was on basic uh, infrastructure, whether it be highway. Uh, ability to acquire right-of-way, whether it be water, wastewater. I mean, the colonias were still and continue to be a, a challenge uh, along the border. But it, it takes advocacy and it takes, uh, quite frankly, not just advocacy today, but tomorrow and the following day uh, to address the long-term needs. The other uh, aspect of it that I would that I would include that I think gives us some leverage in terms of the issues that uh, surround infrastructure are a close working relationship with Mexico. 
and the recognition that when the advocacy comes both from the United States and in the context of trade and, and uh, commerce, that it can be more, uh, more effective. One of the things that I was struck by and, and uh, a bit uh, frustrated or disappointed by was, you know, when the uh, president made his uh, virtual visits to both Canada uh, and Mexico, the Canadian uh, visit was very forward looking. In fact, I think they they released a uh, an agenda for, you know, United States, Canada uh, relationship 21st century and the the issues were as diverse as climate cybersecurity, trade infrastructure it was very very much a forward-looking document conversely after the uh, visit that uh, president biden had with president lopez obrador it was a much more limited uh sort of agenda obviously there was talk of immigration uh and the uh the primary issue that uh, the Mexican president seemed to be focused on was the sovereignty of his country and the desire to continue to move on what is not a particularly investor-friendly relationship uh, or uh, policies as relates to energy, uh, labor, and these sorts of issues, rule of law, corruption, all of which affect the, the investment climate. So if you're going to make a case for infrastructure I think what's important is that both Mexico and the United States coalesce around a vision of growth that would necessitate more uh, investment in infrastructure. Uh, and this is something that I know Congressman Gonzalez and you know Bella and Cuellar and all of them appreciate and understand well, uh, as do our, our state leaders from the area. Uh, but at times that commitment or that vision gets lost at the federal level uh, both in Mexico City uh, and in Washington. So what should we do to keep it in the forefront? You, you got, you said it, you got to keep it at the forefront day in and day out. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's frustrating. Uh, but by doing that, you, you will see some, uh, some wins, some successes. I saw I saw a name on there. I don't know if he's still there. I saw Vale, and I and I know it was Robert. But I but there you go. Uh, I remember back in '88 working with Sam Vale on projects, uh, international bridge projects and infrastructure projects that we were working on in '88 uh, that had been permitted in the '70s or permitted in the late '60s, and it took that uh, commitment over years, decades. Uh, to actually see them uh, to fruition. So keep them at the forefront. Uh, your, the last word in your last question basically was, was the answer. Uh, and as frustrating as it can be, it's got, it's got to be a commitment day in and day out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you mentioned uh, the upcoming election in Mexico yeah. of the next president. Uh, whom do you... Uh, know to be some of the key candidates and how and what is their relationship with the, the U.S. as you well, may it's, know? Well, it's not so much, uh, it's not a presidential election, it's a midterm election. Midterm. Uh, and to give it some, some context uh, in terms of the United States-Mexico relationship, first I'll talk a little bit about the Biden administration and it, and it, it speaks to where we are now and I'll, and I'll discuss the Mexican election. 
But in the wake of uh, President Biden's election, he made it very clear that his priorities were going to be domestic in terms of COVID-19 relief, a re-approachment or re-establishing relationship with our allies around the world, and thirdly, issues of climate and immigration, largely done through, through executive order. And when you look at the issues that President Biden is facing uh, around the world, uh, whether it be China, whether it be Russian adventurism, whether it be uh, the Middle East, uh, Iran, uh, North Korea, uh, issues of containment, issues that, you know, quite frankly, are, are, are the sorts of things that could be very destructive to the world we live in. Those tend to have the priority. And it leaves very little space for issues uh, like Mexico and Canada. It doesn't mean they're not important, but in terms of the priority they're given, they're less so. Now, on the Mexican side, in six months, you'll have elections. And uh, the president's party uh, is in a very strong position. And to give you some sense of how important these elections are, uh, there are 15 governorships up for uh, election, uh, 500 members of the lower house. Yesterday or day before, uh, there was some polling released that showed that President Lopez Obrador and his party enjoy a two to one advantage in terms of the, of the polling. So the likelihood that they will have a good election cycle seems very high right now. And I think it also means that the likelihood of, for the next six months of moving away from essentially a, a domestic political focused agenda in Mexico is, is, is pretty remote. And were the president to get uh, larger majorities of numbers of governors and have, I think it's 10 or 12 more members of the lower house, he would then have the votes necessary to uh, pass more aggressive uh, re reform as relates to energy or some of the issues that have really been somewhat destructive to the environment in Mexico that would encourage investment. And in some sense, I think that that makes it very unlikely, both from the United States, where the president's focus is is elsewhere, and in Mexico for the next six months to have much focus on the bilateral relationship beyond the crises, the things that need immediate attention, whether it be uh, immigration uh, or perhaps some of the implementation around the USMCA. So you'll, the elections are coming up. The president enjoys a uh, in Mexico enjoys very significant advantages. The likelihood that he'll be able to further an agenda uh, that is not particularly investor friendly seems high at this point. So it's it's an interesting moment. Now, with that said, I don't think that you can just talk about that without saying where are the opportunities, Tony. This seems like a pretty pessimistic picture. I think on the other side of these six months, because the truth is, uh, very little good policy gets made during election cycles. Uh, it tends to be the sort of things that have some uh, appeal in a political context, but it's not necessarily good policy. So I think after these six months, there may be some opportunities, whether it be uh, the, more reasonable and, and a proactive implementation of USMCA or a recognition that there are some uh, real opportunities for uh, the USMCA, for this North American platform in the context of relocation of supply chains, 
uh, to Mexico, uh, away from China. And I think also, if you look at the uh, the areas that may benefit the most from that, whether it's northeastern Mexico, that has, I think, a potential to be uh, positive uh, for the valley. And if you start to get that sort of movement back towards investment around supply chains proximate to the border, that feeds very well into the argument about the need for more infrastructure uh, along the border. So it's... It, it, I would say it's sort of a status quoish time in the sense that six months in Mexico going into election, other issues on the uh, Biden administration radar. The primary one that we'll probably see discussed uh, is the uh, is the immigration, and perhaps some of the things around USMC implementation, primarily labor. Uh, so it's 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 not a time where you'll see very forward-looking proposals, but it is a time when they'll start to feel each other out on some of these day-to-day uh, uh, -day issues. I've heard mentioned the, the uh, Bracero program possibly being brought back. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, it's interesting because that was uh, one of the things that President Lopez Obrador wanted to talk about at the, at the last meeting. And as you know, the Bracero program is a product of the 1940s and was uh, largely due to the need for labor given most uh, in that time able-bodied males were off fighting World War II. And it went on for about 20 years or so. It was very, uh, it was essentially uh, and a, a very broad uh, guest worker program. The problems were with it, particularly in Texas, were the treatment of labor uh, around the Bracero program. So it it fell out of favor uh, for for any number of reasons. Now, if you look at conceptually, I think that if you're ever going to have immigration reform more broadly, you have the issues that people seem to have general agreement around, uh, the need for high school labor, uh, the DACA program, and the most contentious aspect of addressing the, you know, I don't know, this 10, 12, 13, whatever the number is, million people that don't have documents in the United States that have lived there for some time has always been the path to citizenship. And so if you pivot away from the path to citizenship and you look at legalization mechanisms or something that is essentially a, uh, a status, a guest worker status, while people then applied for citizenship, that might be, I think, an opportunity for uh, broader immigration reform by taking that immediate pathway to citizenship not off the table, but deferring it and allowing people to go through a legalization or guest worker program. Again, I, I, I think I, I was surprised uh, that it was rolled out and, and talked about in the context of the, the Bracero program, because that's not been a, a uh, characterization in the United States that has been particularly popular. And so it was interesting, but conceptually, it may have some appeal as a, an opportunity to address that large population that has always been the sticking point, not only uh, 
on both sides of the aisle. Uh, traditionally, uh, labor uh, opposed it, and that's a Democratic constituency. And it was opposed uh, amongst Republicans who simply thought that a pathway to citizenship would just be a whole new constituency for the Democratic Party, to be honest. And so that was uh, that that's been the point on that. So, again, Cynthia, I think conceptually, I think if you're going to talk seriously about immigration reform, you have to put a lot of these possibilities on the table in, in order to work to try to get some sort of consensus around it. But it's a tough, tough issue. Uh, the truth is we've had very few opportunities or moments in time where we've had broad immigration reform. I think, we, you know, in, 19, in the 1920s, we went from, we basically put in place our first immigration uh, laws. In the 50s, there were some reform, 80s under Reagan. And since then, we've not really had broad reform. We've had piecemeal efforts to address largely crises. And I think it's time that we move beyond that. And I'm hopeful that we can. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we'll address some of these comments and or questions that uh, were put in the chat box. Uh, one from Mr. Rogelio Aleman, of course. Yesterday, the statewide mandate on wearing masks ended by Governor Abbott. Do you feel that was a good idea, even though the people are still dying from COVID? I think it was premature. Uh, you know, I I I, uh, I could get my arms around the move towards as we get more people vaccinated uh, to opening businesses more broadly. Whether you know it was moving from twenty five to fifty percent, seventy five percent, but I but I think moving away from the mass was premature at this point. Uh, and it, it un, unfortunately because it is such a contentious issue in many respects, the mask versus no mask. I think it put a burden on uh, employers and businesses to make decisions. You know, uh, you saw where HEB has gone back and forth and they're now saying, you know, they're going to encourage masks. Uh, other businesses have said they want masks, but without the ability to say this is a statewide mandate, therefore you wear, will wear a mask. Uh, it puts, you know, that it, it might put that, that, you know, the, the waiter in a restaurant or the cashier at the HEB in the position of trying to be a mask police. And that's, right. you know, I think that's un, uh, unfair. So I, I think it was, I, I think it was too early. Uh, and, and, uh, but I'm very hopeful that we won't see another spike, uh, put us back in the situation because that would be, that would set us all back. Uh, so I'm hopeful that, uh, that he made the right call. Uh, I personally think it was a little early. I know we've got, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you because you know, we've got uh, spring break coming and we've got mm -hmm. Easter coming. Yeah. Graduations. A lot of, a lot of times when you'll have these large gatherings, uh, I also wonder if we won't see some sort of spike in the wake of the freeze where people uh, were spending time with others, whomever had the electricity or whoever had the water, or, you know, these sorts of things that were critical. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that, Again, I, I think it was a little early uh, and anticipating, as you say, these big events for gathering, probably, uh, I don't think a good idea. Yeah. Uh, we have another uh, <clears throat> comment from Mr. Robert Vale, and he says, you know, to tell you, Sam says hello. Yeah. <laughs> I, I told him about your Zoom today and uh, you got the Los, Los Indios Bridge approved in three years, which he says is a record time. I understand with the COVID relief package, there is money for broadband, water, and sewage. Uh, 
infrastructure projects. Stark County received 12 million, but I will need to look at what Hidalgo received. I think we need <laughs> to communicate local needs with political officials to use the money wisely. Yeah. Uh, Robert, I don't have to tell you that that's been the eternal challenge. Uh, it, and it, it, invariably, it's it, it's a frustrating one because it. Uh, I, I served uh, in local government with the county commissioner, Adolph Tome, and he said, listen, don't have any illusions. The big dog always eats first. And uh, by that, he meant those with the political leverage and those that made the strongest cases often got disproportionate. Uh, benefit. And that, I think that's, that really points to the need for, well, look at your organization. It's real Grandy Valley Chamber of Commerce. You're not uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. You're not the Harlingen one or McAllen one or the Far San Juan Alamo one or the Brownsville one. And getting people to think beyond those uh, boundaries and, and city limits has always been a challenge, but it is so critical because any of the infrastructure that, you, that you're talking about, whether it's being uh, broadband or roads or water, it has a benefit that is really to the entire area. And, and I think that's something that uh, our, our officials are getting a little bit better at, uh, but still ultimately, as long as we judge a local official by what they brought home, uh, you're gonna have that, 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 that Friday night tension, you know, is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's something that uh, it's been around as, as long as I can remember. And my guess is that it will be as around as long as, uh, as they say, as long as people are human. Right. Uh, I was also sent a comment about uh, Russia sending uh, Mexico mm -hmm. some, uh, uh, some uh, vaccines, the vaccines that shouldn't uh, the U.S. be also helping out Mexico. Yeah, you know that's that's an that that's a, an interesting one and a very challenging one. And if you look at what the uh, uh, what the Chinese and the Russians have engaged in, what I would call vaccine diplomacy, uh, and it is throughout Latin America, and you've seen it with the Chinese uh, a bit more aggressively in terms of their investments initially over the last decade have been very significant in and around Latin America. And now their positioning with their vaccines is, is also very strategic. Uh, Russia has, has tried to do uh, similar uh, things and has also been less active in terms of investment, but has been there in a meddlesome way. The Russians are very good uh, geopolitical players, whether it was you know uh, a dozen years ago uh, positioning themselves in Venezuela with Chavez or these sorts of things. Now, what the Biden administration has said is, one, they've, they have uh, rejoined the World Health Organization and, and uh, the COVAX uh, initiative, which would try to make uh, vaccines uh, more equitably distributed. But ultimately, I think you, you have to understand or appreciate uh, that the president's, uh, Biden's position was, was essentially We'll see, what, we'll see what we can do. We want to work with you. We will communicate. We'll coordinate. But in a limited supply, he was going to focus on the people within the U.S. And by that, it's interesting because people within the U.S. is, is not 
limited to citizens of the U.S., but simply people within the U.S. And that's, you know, that's, that's a bit of a start. But I, I think ultimately uh, Mexico and their vaccines, just like Canada and their vaccines, if we're going to have a strong North American platform, the competitiveness and the productivity of all three countries is critical. There's no doubt in my mind that this, uh, in, in this hemisphere, or certainly in, in North America, the economic engine that's going to power the recovery is the U.S. Uh, and I said it a moment ago, but if you look at the, uh, the Mexican economy right now, it shrunk eight, eight and a half, almost nine percent last year, uh, anticipating some growth this coming year. But what has kept it relatively stable, if you will, and that might be too strong a word, have been remittances from the U.S. Uh, and exports, all of which will benefit from the stimulus program uh, adopted in the United States and from a healthier United States economy. And that's going to be, I think, driven in large part by us getting beyond COVID. So I know that's a long answer, but, but really the two essential points are it will be the U.S. economy that is the engine that drives North America. And you're seeing a fair amount of uh, vaccine diplomacy from the Chinese and the Russians. And I think right now, what we need to be doing is getting ourselves vaccinated and putting ourselves in a position where we can work more closely with Mexico on the issue of uh, vaccinations, because they're way short, even with the purchases. And I forget how many millions it was from the uh, Russian Chinese uh, combined. They're still very, very short. Uh, this one shot vaccination, the Johnson and Johnson one may give you know some more uh, uh, latitude uh, in terms of what we uh, do uh, with Mexico. But uh, I mean, I, I understand the response and I understand the concerns about what Russia and China are doing. It's scary times to tell you. I don't believe we have any other comments and a truly or questions. I truly appreciate your time. And are there any other closing remarks? We as the Rio Grande Valley Hispanic Chamber, as you said, uh, we're here to represent the area, the whole area, not just a particular city. So we do take into consideration all concerns of the different parts of the valley. It, uh, of course, being education, health, small business, uh, international affairs, uh, all different aspects. So we have become very uh, strong, should I say, in the state and in the United States. We deal very closely with the with Ramiro Cavazos, uh, your friend at the United States Hispanic yeah. Chamber, and uh, uh, he will also be coming down here pretty soon again. But um, do you have any other parting word, parting statements that you might uh, have for our members here? Well, I, I guess one would be process and the other would be uh, very personal. I think in, ter first, in terms of process, Continue to plug into your networks. You mentioned Ramiro, and earlier in the conversation, you mentioned uh, the, our congressional delegation. Continue to hold them accountable to the, for the things that are important uh, to us uh, in South Texas and along the border. Let them know. Uh, I, uh, my frustration was, was, was oftentimes that it seemed like the policy which most impacted uh, us was driven by individuals in Iowa or Idaho or, or some other state so removed from the border that it, their understanding was largely sound bites and they weren't sound bites based on reality. So keep telling our story. The second one relates to the story. And the story is that trade, 
and commerce are what drive opportunity for not only for this generation, but for future generations. Secondly, immigration is something so fundamental to our country and our nature that while we all want safe, secure, and efficient borders, we don't want to close them to immigration, which has always made us a stronger and better country. And so I, I, I would both hold people accountable and then tell them the story. And I think your organization is in a very good position to do both. Thank you. We do have one last minute question. Okay. Uh, two part question. <clears throat> How much smile, is this Ricardo Sanchez? Is this your yes, question? Yes, it is. All right. All right. Yes, he sits on our board of directors, by the way. All right, great. Um, how much damage do you think the last administration did in terms of keeping our Mexican friends on the south side of the river with the wall rhetoric and strained relationships? And how do we repair it? And how do we, the local community and businesses, welcome the shoppers and other investments back into the Rio Grande Valley? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a good question. And, I, and I'm going to try to be very objective about it, because I do think what what uh, most of the damage done was around the brinksmanship and the tone of many of the negotiations. If you look at the last administration, curiously, they enjoyed a relatively good relationship one on one, president to president, and were able to get uh, USMCA renegotiated. And, and passed. And a bit of a surprise because neither President Trump nor Lopez Obrador were particularly free traders. In fact, it was one of those situations where almost in spite of their reluctance to embrace, trace, uh, embrace trade completely, they got an agreement done. So that was good. On, on immigration, I think uh, Lopez Obrador worked with President Trump and it was a bit of a trade-off. You say, well, they were doing the Romania and Mexico protocols. They were forcing along their southern border. They were having these challenges within Mexico. What was the benefit? And the benefit was that I think in the last administration in the United States, they largely didn't do much advocacy around uh, corruption or many of the U.S. interest in Mexico or the deteriorating investment climate. They, they essentially left them alone on those issues. Energy is a good example. And so I, I think certainly while there was, there was uh, damage in terms of tone, I think some of the policy initiatives, particularly the USMCA on the, on the, uh, on the immigration one, I always had uh, real problems with, with the uh, Trump administration's approach, but on the trade, they were able to get it done. Now, how do you repair that? You know, it, it takes two or three in this case, if we're talking about Canada as well. And I think the, the Biden administration is a more traditional collaborative. I think you'll, you'll, you'll see less brink, brinksmanship. You'll see a better tone. And I think they want to engage on a broader set of issues. But on the Mexican side, I'm not sure that Lopez Obrador really wants to engage a, a, along a broad set of issues. All that said, Richard, I think that the, the relationship has the potential to take on broader issues, to have a more collaborative tone, to really get some things done, uh, but it's going to take two. On a more personal level, uh, and this is largely anecdotal, I don't think the Mexican people or the American people have turned on the other. 
our leadership many times have been out of sync with the true sentiments of how Americans feel about Mexico and how Mexico feels about uh, the United States. But I will concede that there were times when the frustration around the tone uh, led to people scratching their head and, and wondering, wait, if this relationship is so important, why are we talking to each other that way? To put it in very you know simple terms. But yeah, I remember when <clears throat> all these billboards were, co- were being set up in Monterrey and all along the all along the border and, and in Mexico about the U.S. not wanting the Mexicans to come over and do their shopping, you know. So they kept there was a board, billboard saying, you know, "Adios Rio Grande Valle" and uh, other other different things. Uh, it just like you said, it's, uh, it needs to be all held by politicians and be and they should. Keep in, in mind that all of these different comments and such, how it affects the our area to begin with, the border, which is hurting all along the, the whole United mm-hmm. States, and how our sister relatives feel, how their feelings are in Mexico towards us. And again, just because of po- political comments, et cetera. And one last thing, because I know you've got to go. <clears throat> as a veteran from our, your good friend, Rogelio Aleman, as a veteran, how long do you feel we have the National Guard here um, in the Rio Grande Valley helping with the COVID response? Uh, well, first, I, I appreciate the fact that you characterized me as a veteran. I'm not actually a, a veteran. Uh, but <laughs> I couldn't hear you, Rogelio. But but uh, I I will say, I, I, excuse me. I can, anyway, uh, which branch? Yeah. Oh, I said I'm actually not a veteran. No, I'm I'm flattered. I'm flattered that you would characterize me that way. But I'm not actually a veteran. Uh, I don't know how long the National Guard will be there. Uh, I, I honestly don't. I, I think that's driven in large part by decisions at the state level. And as we go into uh, another electoral cycle and you see the, the talk in Austin, whether it be Governor Abbott or Patrick or others, uh, I think there's a, the, the general sentiment that somehow there's uh, a benefit, whether it be real or, or perceived, to having the National Guard there. I, I do think that we're going through a moment uh, again just as I talked about the 2019 one, where this sense that there'll be a change in policy has led to more disruption along the border. I think we'll get beyond that, uh, whether it be with expanded processing centers, whether it be uh, with clear lines in terms of the uh, uh, what the rules of immigration are going to be. I saw yesterday where Roberta Jacobson, uh, someone I know well and was a successor to me there at the embassy, is now the borders are, and she was trying to send a clear message not now. This is not the time to be coming. We're trying to, to fix this is how they characterized it. Uh, so in, in, it's going to take a little bit of time. Uh, I don't know how long, but I think, I think you're likely to see uh, either National Guard or National Guard light, or you'll see more of the federal presence uh, through the agencies along the border. Uh, I, I think very easily for the next three to six months. I know our hotels and our restaurants and a lot of the retails truly enjoy having the uh, 
extra national guard, extra highway department people down here in the Valley. I mean, we're almost at a hundred percent capacity because mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, thank you so very much, Ambassador. I know that your time, you've, you've gone above and beyond the 30 minutes that you allowed me. But no, so again, I appreciate it. No, I've got a noon call, but I, no, this is this has been a pleasure, obviously. And uh, I started by saying it's, even if only virtually, it's, it's good to be home. Uh, and I do appreciate the great work that uh, your organization does. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And we hopefully we will have you back again in better times. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Again, thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Appreciate it. Y'all be Bye -bye. safe. Wear your masks. Wear your there you masks. Go. And if you get out, sunscreen. If you go to <laughs> if you go to Mexico, sunscreen and masks. Okay. All thank right. you. Bye-bye. The former ambassador to Mexico, Tony Garza, spoke to the CEO of the RGV Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, Cynthia Sakulensky, on March the 11th. I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.